0: Welcome
1: to the OMFIFT podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIFT podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute at OMFIFT, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Larissa DeLima, Senior Fellow with the Oliver Wyman Forum. Thank you, Lewis. Happy to be here. And Doug Elliott, Partner at Oliver Wyman. Thanks, Lewis. Uh, and today we've got a really interesting topic uh, to be discussing and it's great to have you guys here for this. We're going to be talking about uh, the future of money, what it looks like uh, going forward. And you guys have a really interesting report with uh, with some different paradigms uh, for what money is going to look like in the future. So it'd be great to, to get your thoughts on that. Um, I guess just to start off, it does seem as though... For the first time in a while, we're in a period of really rapid change in in how we think about money and how we conceive uh, of money. Um, Is is that true or has there been constant change? Uh, And if it it is true, then what's kind of catalyzed this
2: process? What's kicked that off? I absolutely do think it is true, Lewis. Uh, Look, money has evolved over the centuries or even millennia for that matter. It's not like it doesn't change, but it's rare for things to move quite as rapidly as it has recently. And I think as with so many things in our society, uh technological change is at the core of this. It's not just that. You also saw after the global financial crisis, there was concern about whether our institutions were really fit for purpose and how finance worked and how money worked, et cetera. And so I think there's more more churn in our thinking about all of this But technology is really what's been driving this particular trend the most. If you think back to Bitcoin, which came out of the global financial crisis in many ways, that showed it was possible to use technology to create a whole new digital currency. After a while, it occurred to people that you could, in fact, use it, that same technology, uh, in order to have something that was more solidly based in traditional forms of money. So you had stable coins, which were created as a way to uh, uh, kind of mimic central bank currencies like traditional greenbacks that we walk around with in the U.S. uh, and keep a, you know, attempt anyway to keep a stable value between the stable coin and a dollar or a pound or whatever currency is your preference. Uh, And more recently that's then moved to central banks stepping forward and saying maybe one of the options here ought to be actual central bank money that's provided in digital form. So again, I think some of these are larger societal developments. A lot of it's just the technology making things possible that weren't possible before
1: yeah that's really interesting i think um so that's that's kind of what's catalyzed it but for for the people that are are working on this what what are their motivations what do they hope to achieve with these new forms of money that uh isn't possible with the existing forms
0: so from the perspective in the institutions interested in issuing new forms of money the motivation is commercial so we are in a world of significantly higher in raising interest rates So the economic value from generating and facilitating payments could be bigger and more contested going forward. So the financial system as a whole can significantly change from the technologies that Doug was mentioning, and this could impact liquidity, market making, risk management. So the motivation is really about establishing viable commercial propositions, to then scale different forms of digital money. And of course, if you're thinking about commercial proposition, you're looking to deliver value for your clients. So that from the perspective of users of new forms of money, it's really about what is it that these new forms of money can offer? You know, any form needs to be trusted, reliable, sustainable, secure, And as Doug was talking about, from the perspective of the technology and what it can offer, are new ways to transact across different types of assets. So all of a sudden, you can have payments be settled instantly, safely, any time of the day, and at the same moment in time when you're exchanging different asset forms. So this is a process that's also referred to as atomic settlement. So it's not that... You have the technology, but the technology definitely facilitates the specific type of technology from distributed ledger technology definitely facilitates that. Yeah. So you can increase the speed and lower the cost of payments. And when you have a form of money that is digitally native to distributed ledger technology, so they are issued directly on the ledger and they coexist where the digital assets Exists, you can also increase the connectivity to other products and services that could be desirable. Um, You can facilitate better collateral management, yield enhancement, and then just really connect the payment flow through the entire trade lifecycle.
1: Excellent. So uh, you mentioned uh, distributed ledger technology there, and Doug, you mentioned Bitcoin, DLT, cryptocurrencies have obviously been a very big part of uh, the story here, Uh, the story, you know, the development of money. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? What is it about the, the concept of decentralization that is important for the, the future of money? Is that going to
2: be a big part of it? I, I think it will. Look, you're always going to have centralization as well as decentralization, because there are aspects that can most usefully be done with some centralized body helping make it happen. But one of the things we've seen, for example, in finance, Is over, well, really probably centuries, development of markets. It turns out that finding ways to connect many, many different investors with many, many different opportunities uh, to invest is a more efficient method than just relying on intermediaries to sit in the middle and try to scan and match things. So there are places in finance where it makes sense to have that centralization, but there are many more places where decentralization, if it can be done intelligently, is more efficient. And I think you see that in society in general. I mean, look at just what's happened with uh, uh, with air travel. I remember when I used to go and have to find an agent who understood Italy well enough to get me, you know, the right flights and all of that the ability now for us to use the decentralization of the web and directly interact, I think we'd all agree has been a tremendous boon. So I'm I'm not at all surprised conceptually that there are big advantages. And I'll let Larissa talk a little more about some of the specific advantages in this area.
0: So distributed ledger technology, and I'm going to focus more on the distributed part than decentralization. They, work or they're powered by distributing the process of um, transacting and what that means is that you go from a world where record keeping was siloed within specific institutions to one where record keeping all of a sudden is shared by all who are participating in constructing this distributed ledger. So this um, shared view of information of transaction balances of ownership is really then what enables the sharing of business rules and then for the potential automation of business processes so all of a sudden, from the distribution of how you process information, you actually get a shared view of information that then allows you to distribute but in a coordinated manner how um business logic is done um through automation um and all of a sudden you have a much easier way for different stakeholders to uh, coordinate
1: their action yeah okay that makes sense uh, i can see what, what you mean about the value of uh that kind of architecture um we're we've been talking so far though as though there's just one version of distributed ledgers and, and obviously that isn't really true. Um we've got public you know, public ones like Bitcoin and, and private ones like uh r 3 Corda, things like that. Um do you guys do you guys have a view on whether both of these will continue to coexist or if one is likely to, to supersede the other in time?
0: So we're still in Early days, and we do expect coexistence to occur for some time. They each have their advantages. So closed networks, also called permission networks, um, by nature, they impose limitations on who can access and manage the network to focus on specialized intermediaries. So what this allows is a greater level of control, which has policymaker support because it facilitates the management of risk and compliance while also having support for market participants who may prefer this model for its safety and soundness. On the other hand, when you limit participation, that also makes it harder for the networks to scale and to develop a rich ecosystem. So it's really, we're still early days in seeing how these private networks progress and are able to drive the richness that is then observed in public blockchains. So these public permissionless networks, they're open to anyone, which on the one hand is great exactly for that innovation potential. Participation is really only limited by economic realities, but the challenge with them is that it's much harder to enforce compliance and regulation when you have no restrictions on access and usage. One approach we've seen is to build a trust layer to ensure that transactions only take place among verified participants. So this was the approach, for example, for Project Guardian, uh, which was an institutional DeFi experiment by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, DPS, JP Morgan Onyx, and SBI Digital Holdings. We co-wrote the report on the findings of that pilot, so we would recommend others interested in how you bring safety to permissionless networks to read on. But to recap, It's gonna be a mix of approaches, really depends on the risk profile of participants. Um, Closed networks ensures compliance, but there's really so much innovation happening on public permissionless chains that even for those participants who don't have the risk tolerance to engage with them, was still worth observing and following the developments.
1: Yeah, absolutely, thank you. So, stepping back towards the world of of money and payments and the new forms of money that we're seeing emerging uh you mentioned stable coins c b d banks are also talking about tokenized versions of deposits as well um, again in the in the report, you mentioned that uh we're not necessarily moving towards a situation where uh only one of these exists, but they might kind of exist in in parallel,
2: uh, you know, simultaneously. Can you talk about what, why you think that might be the case? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And look, I think a mistake a lot of observers make is to project out the future as if we know what it was gonna be, because this is an area that's undergoing such rapid evolution uh, in a world itself that's undergoing a lot of rapid evolution, we think it's really important to take more of a scenario-oriented view, to think about what are some plausible potential futures. And as you point out, and we'll come back into to in a second, uh, we think the actual future will probably be a mix of many of these things in different, uh, different amounts, perhaps in different places and different uses. But we found it useful to think in terms of four broad potential futures. Think of these as as sort of extreme cases. So one is uh, a future in which central intermediaries remain very important. And among those, it's the banks that dominate. And so for payments, that would end up translating primarily to uh, deposit tokens, also known as tokenized deposits, depending on what you like to call them. Um, and that's really taking a traditional form of deposit and just finding a way to make it digital. Um, there's a second potential future, which is still quite centralized with intermediaries sitting in the middle of dominating payments, but in which it's the digitally native firms that win. Perhaps the banks aren't able to get past their older culture or regulators won't let them, and the innovative forces among the digitally native firms are able to step forward and there you 'd expect that stable coins would be the dominant payment mechanism since that works well for them uh, there's a third what we call sovereign expansion uh, which is uh, a version of a world in which central bank digital currencies become important. And in fact, they become much more important than most central banks are actually intending them to be. That is, if you look at what uh, the Europeans or the UK or others who are in the U.S. who are seriously considering a central bank digital currency, they generally all want to introduce it in a way that allows the financial system and payments to remain dominated by the traditional players like the banks, but simply add safety to the system and make it make it work better. So there's a clear role for the central bank digital currency, but it's a kind of a backup in many ways or infrastructure. Uh, but there is a possibility that central bank digital currencies prove to be so useful and, of course, they're as safe as you can get that perhaps they substantially displace um, the well stable coins and deposit tokens. Um, and then the fourth possibility, which uh, I sometimes in exaggerated form called the revolution, in which we have uh, DeFi really coming to dominate. And we think in particular the likeliest version of that is institutional DeFi, like Larissa was talking about. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that last one looks
1: like, that institutional DeFi? How does that differ from, uh, uh, you know, the
2: centralized institutional financial system? Absolutely. I think Larissa is uh, the expert on that one, so I'll turn it over to her.
0: Yeah, I think one way to see how it can be quite different, um, is to think about it as the acceleration of this trend towards capital market-based financing where you really see the ways in which investors are participating and engaging, and the market is quite different. And you see a movement from intermediation through banks to more direct intermediation from um, investors to borrowers. So forms like um, institutional DeFi facilitates that as a participation model.
1: So less reliance on, you know, bank loans and that sort of thing and more marketplace uh,
2: and that being, you know, a decentralized form as well. It, yeah. we're, 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 we're more, I think, here making the, the analogy. If you think about what happened for large corporations, traditionally, they borrowed their money from banks. And then it occurred to people and the technology of the time evolved enough that you could make it more of a market. As you, as you see now, so generally a large bank, a large uh, institution will issue bonds. Uh, the role of the intermediary is still there. It used to be the commercial bank making the loan, but now it's an investment bank, which may actually be part of a commercial banking group, playing a different role of facilitating that matching up in the market without taking it on their balance sheet. And we see institutional defi could be uh basically take many of the benefits of the decentralization that comes from defi while still providing you know that trust layer and the degree of intermediation a looser level of intermediation but the degree of intermediation that you still need to facilitate the uh, uh, the uh, interactions including the payments that we were just talked about that's fascinating thank you um let's
1: talk a little bit about uh the the other different uh paradigms that you mentioned and and how they might uh might influence or might change how we do business uh in a couple of different ways so uh, i mean you know we can start off with just the the sort of simplest domestic retail payments when i go and buy uh go buy you know milk or, or tea or whatever uh yeah how would you expect there to be much difference in my experience, uh, if I'm using, uh, you know, a stable coin, a tokenized deposit, uh, or, or a CBDC, uh, or, or, uh,
2: something of that nature?
0: Yeah. So as Doug mentioned, we can't, um, it's, it's very easy and tempting to just predict the future as something that's completely defined. What our paper, um, calls out is the fact that These different forms of money will favor different types of intermediaries or will mean that the future is being driven by different types of intermediaries. When we're talking about the future of domestic retail payments, the rollout of central bank digital currencies is going to have a pretty big impact here. So we know that there are over 100 jurisdictions globally that are either exploring issuing a CBDC or already have pilots or more advanced plans in place. The ECB recently finalized its prototypes, and many are expecting it to go forward with the decision to develop a digital euro later this year. Now, that does not mean that we're necessarily in the case of sovereign expansion. Many of the CBDC projects, they're not making use of distributed ledger technologies and many central banks are intentionally leaving the development of new value add payment features to the private sector. They want to continue this collaborative model between private and public. What this means is that you may actually see an intensifying of competition of other paradigms between TradFi, Evolves or new digital intermediaries. Um, you could see increased competition or perhaps even collaboration between the firms that dominate payments today and blockchain natives. Stablecoin issuers are quite keen to enter the real world retail payment space. Um, and in some cases, they're doing so by partnering with payment firms. So there is still a full spectrum of possibilities, and it may go in different directions. Um And it may evolve differently across specific
2: jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, Louis, if I I could build on that. There are certain parts of payments that everybody's going to want to have be the same way. You want things to be really simple. You want them to be very fast. You want them to be safe. From a consumer point of view, you, you want it to be seamless. You want to not even think about it. So all of all of the winners in each of these potential futures are going to have to deliver that to you. Then the question, as Larissa was talking about, is what gets added on top of that? So, for example, if this is the more bank dominated world and you've got uh, deposit tokens, they're going to still want to find a way to tie you more closely to other bank services. You know, right now when, when they do business with you and have your deposit, a big reason they do that is because they think that'll give them a leg up on the various other things they could do for you. Now, that's one of the challenges of deposit tokens. If you make it more to where there's this uh, fungible uh, token that just bounces around and you're not thinking so much about which bank you're tied to, you know, the banks are going to have to come up with a commercial strategy that allows them to keep the closer ties while having those benefits. On the other hand, if you're a stablecoin provider, uh, it may be you want to try to provide uh, a number of other value-added services, or maybe you decide to just be more focused on making what could be quite a nice rent from doing stablecoin business. So we we, we could go on. There There are a lot of potential ways this could evolve. So there will be key features that everybody is going to provide and then, uh, value added features on top.
1: So the, the, the primary differences that you're talking about, uh, in terms of one paradigm succeeding or, you know, dominating over another is not in the user experience, but in the, the business models and then who's kind of, uh, who's, who's owning the plumbing, I guess, who's owning the system. Well,
2: well, well they interact. So mm-hmm. a part of it is just the plumbing and wouldn't be noticeable but it affects who makes the money. But other parts of it will be um, in, in order to lure the consumer into working with you, you think of additional value added things you could, you could do for them. I mean, look, you've already seen it in lots, lots of, you know, payment apps that are out there. They find some way to give you additional information that's helpful to you or Let you know there's a sale on at the store you're standing next to or or whatever. There are a zillion innovations you can do depending on what uh, provider is giving this to you. They'll focus on giving you different uh, additional features beyond the core that everybody provides. Okay, great. That that
1: makes sense in the in the relatively simple space for for domestic payments. Um, I suspect things might be more complicated when you're going cross border and you're dealing with different jurisdictions and things like that. Um, what do you feel like uh, these paradigms, uh, sort of competing paradigms, will will mean uh, for cross border payments?
0: Yeah. So cross-border payments is more complex, and that's one of the reasons why to date it has been more expensive and has had a ton of friction. Um, But what that also means is that it's a space where there's significant opportunity for digital money to make a difference and facilitate the process of sending money across borders. Um, We have another paper where we show that corporates move about $23 23 million, trillion across borders each year, and they incur 120 billion just in transaction costs. If there were a common platform that facilitated real time, 24 seven cross border payments, that could slash costs by 80%. So that's a significant difference in cost. But when you're talking about moving money across borders, it's really important to have an active involvement with the public sector to make sure that the safety and soundness um, and within a specific jurisdiction and also ensure that any movement of money doesn't um, contradict any monetary policy goals. so we do see a lot of involvement from the public sector over thirty jurisdictions have already begun experimenting with using CBDCs for cross-border payments, and the BIS is quite active in facilitating and coordinating different experiments. However, it's quite challenging because you need to coordinate and harmonize not just on the technology, but also across legal and regulatory requirements. So that makes the coordination that much more complex. We do also see the private sector being quite active. They are launching consortium, looking to use blockchain technology for multi-currency foreign exchange net settlement to experiment with PVP capabilities. And on public chains, a lot of the stablecoin activity is in U.S. dollar. So that would limit the ability to have significant um Blow across currencies for stable coins, but with the passage of Mika, it's possible that there's added regulatory clarity and more scale and growth for europed stablecoins. so we'll really see the potentially the development of deeper markets at least in one specific corridor using exclusively public chains.
1: very interesting, yeah, so uh, potentially some some quite big changes coming to uh, a market that. You know, calling back to what we were saying at the start is, is seeing some, some pretty rapid changes for, for the first time in a while. Um, lots more to say on this topic, but we're running, we're running short of time. So, uh, I urge, uh, our listeners to, uh, take a look at the, uh, the paper that Oliver Wyman Forum has just published on this topic. A lot more detail, uh, detailed information there and it's a great read um but before i let you guys go uh, since we've been talking about the importance of the the cryptocurrency market for for uh the you know as a catalyst for uh for payments i thought it was worth getting your thoughts on the extremely important uh big enforcement actions uh from the SEC uh going on at the moment um with you know the SEC uh, suing some very major crypto exchanges for for failing to register as as exchanges and selling unregistered securities. Uh, what do you feel like this this means for for the cryptocurrency market? Are these likely to be isolated occurrences? Are there are there going to be more to come? Uh, what do you think uh, we're going to see in terms of
2: changes in the crypto market going forward? Uh, I absolutely do expect more to come in terms of enforcement actions in the U.S. There. Is a fundamental difference of views between different parts of the industry and certainly the SEC and the CFTC for that matter there's a range of views about what a what a crypto asset is uh, To state the obvious, the SEC thinks most of them are securities and therefore should have been all along subject to the very detailed and at times burdensome requirements that we have for securities, uh, which is why they're using enforcement actions. There are others who see these more as commodities. Uh, there, there are even people out there who see these more like collectibles who don't think there's an intrinsic value, but that if people for some reason like having some Bitcoin around, that's like, uh, you know, like liking having a trading card or something. Uh, so, as long as you have these fundamental differences in views, you're going to have things like the enforcement, act, enforcement actions from the SEC. Uh, what helps is, and where I hope we'll eventually get, I wish sooner than probably will happen, is clarity from the legislature. What you've seen in Europe is they've passed the Markets and Crypto Assets Act, uh, and that provides There's still a lot they'll need to work out in practice, but it provides a a lot more clarity on uh, digital assets in general. You've seen other jurisdictions move forward with clarity. The U.S., there's proposed legislation, but the odds of any legislation passing on anything in the U.S. right now is relatively low, and particularly when you take something like crypto assets where there's such a divergence of views. uh, I mean, I hope something constructive passes, but probably won't and we may be in this limbo for a while and therefore a lot of things will happen in the courts instead of uh, at the pure policy level. Yeah it's a it's a really interesting time Um, it
1: does seem like the U.S. is kind of going a different direction obviously you mentioned Mika the UK will have something similar soon there's a a similar uh, regulation in in Dubai Um, is this do you feel like Crypto businesses are just going to have to move out of the US and, and set up elsewhere or, uh, does that not even work? I mean, obviously you, if you've got US customers, you'll still be, uh, within the, the arm of the SEC's approach to extra judiciality. So, uh, do you see, uh, this having an effect on the global crypto market or will, will other people kind of pick up the slack?
2: First of all, I think we're going to get our act together. The U.S. sometimes moves very slowly because of our separation of powers and right now the strong political polarization. But when things need to be figured out, we eventually do come up with a framework that works. So I don't view this as remotely a permanent situation. Uh, it's just dragging on for considerably longer than we would ideally want it to. Second. The U.S. market is just so big that I, it's hard for me to see all of the major players in digital assets just leaving the U.S. Um, and then third, the point you, you made very well, Lewis, is how do you keep U.S. Uh, entities and individuals from interacting with, with whatever you have? So maybe you set yourself up in Europe because you like Mika. Uh, in theory, you can keep anyone in the U.S. from being involved with what you're doing, but in practice, it can be quite hard. And part of it is the things you'd have to do to ensure that didn't happen can be very burdensome and turn away many customers. So, uh, I think that most digital assets firms are going to do their best to find a way to continue to interact with the U.S. even with the troublesome situation we have at the moment, yeah, it will be really interesting to
1: to see it is amazing to me how uh, dynamic and vibrant the crypto industry has been in the u s in spite of the absence of a, a clear path for uh, registration or uh, you know seemingly a way for for people who want to adhere to the law to do so
2: yeah and Lewis, if I can just say it, we do have to keep in mind it 's possible that the courts in the U.S. actually will resolve this reasonably expeditiously. I'm not a lawyer. I have no idea what's going to happen. But if the industry were to win the fights with the SEC, then you'd find they would be in a much more comfortable situation operating in the U.S. And that is at least a possibility.
1: Mm, certainly. Um, well, uh, fingers crossed for for some clarity uh, and some rapidity. Uh, uh, whatever the outcome is. Um Thank you, Larissa. Thank you, Doug. It's been a fantastic conversation uh, and much more to discuss in the future. Uh, so thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Louis. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. We're available on Spotify and Podbean and on demand on fifth.org. Uh, go there and you can check out our upcoming events uh, and other publications uh, and see what's going on uh, on the commentary side as well, where you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, see you next time. Thanks very much. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to the
2: Fifth Podcast.